0: We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the book of the Revelation, and to the verse 13 of chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8, verse 13, we read, And I beheld, and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, woe 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 to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are to sound note those words woe 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 to the inhabitants the inhabitors of the earth. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth. And you and I live in the very earth that is referred to. We are inhabitants of the earth, of which John writes. And here is a voice from heaven saying, Woe three times to the inhabitants of the earth. Such are the great and terrible events that are to take place. Notice where the origin of these terrible uh, fulfillings of these woes is to be found Revelation 9, verse 1, and the fifth angel sounded. One of the last three now sounds, and woe because of what happens. I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth. I saw a star all from heaven unto the earth. And to him, this is a person, this star is a person. Unto him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit. And what happens then? There arose a smoke Out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. Now, we have been emphasizing that what John sees and that which he writes about, he writes about it and conveys his message to us with symbols. But John just doesn't pick out any symbol that he imagines might represent whatever it is, the facts or the truth that he seeks to convey to you and me, to our minds. John knows from the Old Testament and from the teaching of the Savior, as we've so to emphasize the significance of these symbols and what they actually symbolize. Now, in the chapter 8, four of the trumpets have sounded and terrible plagues have been sent upon the earth to men, but not directly affecting them, indirectly but not directly. When we read the first angel, verse 7 of chapter 8, sounded, there followed, hail and fire mingled with blood, and they were cast upon the earth, and the third part of trees was burnt up, and all green grass was burnt up, and so on. And you see the a uh, third part repeatedly down through this chapter eight affected, so that although God is executing his wrath against sin, he remembers mercy he doesn't destroy everything, and he doesn't even destroy men, but what he does is send plagues uh, that When we go back to Exodus to the time of Pharaoh and the children of Israel were to be released out of bondage when Pharaoh refused to let God's people go. Well, God sent plagues, similar plagues to what we have here in chapter 8. They were, as it were, uh, foretelling the power of God And what kind of plagues God sends against those who are rebellious and disobedient and defiant of himself. And this is what happens in the scene in chapter 8. It is the material world, the physical, the material world that the plagues are sent upon. But they indirectly affect man, he draws his pleasure, he he draws his wealth, he draws his sustenance from that material world, and uh, so you see these mysterious pictures here depicting fearful, unusual, unpredictable, mysterious judgments, plagues of judgment upon the earth. Now I don't think we have to look very far to see that even today such plagues do plague the earth that we live upon. But when we come to the last three trumpets sounding things are going to become a lot worse. Now before Entering in to the substance of the first plague, there is something we need to straighten out. And that is how God is, how Christ, how God purposes to be glorified, how he purposes that the knowledge of his glory... We'll cover the earth, because that's something we pray for. And I wonder sometimes if when we pray for it, we understand what we're asking God for. We need to go back to the Old Testament, and of course, there John would go himself. If you go with me back to the book of Numbers, we may have mentioned this in the past, but let's look so often, we take text, or we take a phrase, or we take a sentence, we build a doctrine around it, or we build an idea or a concept around it without even considering the context in which God makes the statement. In Numbers chapter 14, uh, Moses is pleading for rebellious Israelites. They've rebelled against God. They've provoked God to great anger and he would have destroyed them if Moses hadn't intervened and pled for them. Now, Moses does not want to take these Hebrews into the promised land without God going with them. And listen to what Moses says to God, Numbers chapter 14 verse 17. <coughs> now I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great according as thou hast spoken saying, the Lord is long suffering, and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. Now, God had made this fact known to Moses. Moses said, show me thy glory. Show me thy glory. Is he talking about some other glory? The knowledge of the glory of the Lord is to cover the earth. Well, Moses, he's able to reveal to us what that glory is all about because God showed it to him. And this is it. His glory is bound up in this. Pardon I, verse 19, Pardon, I beseech thee, this people, according To the greatness of thy mercy, and as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. But as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Moses said, show me thy glory. What did God show him? That he was long-suffering, that he was compassionate, and so on. And he would visit the iniquities of the fathers upon the children. That's how God shows his glory. People have got the idea, that. well, the glory, that's all about the glory of the gospel. And they, are rather, separated in their minds from the glory which God himself clearly revealed to Moses. Now, keeping that in verse 21 again. But as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all these those men which have seen my glory and my miracles... Which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tempted me now these ten times, and have not hearkened unto my voice. Surely they shall not see the land, and so on. What's God saying? Men will see my glory in my judgments upon ungodliness they will see and discover God is not mocked. Yes, he is merciful. Yes, he is long-suffering. He delights in mercy. But he will manifest his glory in his holy opposition to sin and rebellion and disobedience and so on. In the prophecy of Isaiah then, in the chapter 11, this is, uh, of course, prophetic of the coming of the Messiah. Uh, Isaiah chapter 11, you read from the beginning of the chapter, there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And that's a reference to the Messiah, the Savior. The gospel peace that ensues upon his coming. Verse 9, then, of this chapter 11, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. They cover the sea, but they don't cover the mountains. The waters do not cover everything. And there's an idea in some people's minds, oh, well, this is a reference to the whole world of men, all the nations, converted, converted, under the gospel, because kings will bring their wealth to Zion, and queens shall become the nursing mothers of the church, and so on. That's going to be a wonderful day, a millennial day, when all the nations will bow in submission to the Redeemer. Here is the Savior's coming into the world with the, the Prince of Peace, bringing about a glorious gospel blessings to men, and the knowledge of the Lord spreads across the earth. But it does not mean that everyone is to be converted, nor even that the majority will be converted. It does that when men say these things, they actually read things into the Word of God. Instead of exegeting, they eisegete, and they put things in that are not supposed to be there because it suits their own particular notions and their own theological opinions. Now, another uh, portion that we might look to is in the little prophecy of Habakkuk. And the chapter 2, and we may read from verse 12. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 12. Woe to him that buildeth a town with blood, and establisheth a city by iniquity. Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the people shall labor In the very fire, and the people shall weary themselves for very vanity. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, if you look at it in its context, God is speaking of his glory being seen in his judgments as well as his blessings. And God would receive no glory if he tolerated and condoned rebellion and sin and disobedience. He is glorified in the fact he is God. He is honored and he is glorified in the fact, He is a holy God. He is a purer eyes than to behold evil and He cannot look upon iniquity. And it is God's judgments against sin that exalt His name and magnify Him before men. Now, one of the things we're at, we're, clearly told to pray for, and that's why we do it. You have it there in the Psalm 72, which we often sing from, uh, the uh, concluding prayer, as it were, of the psalmist David, Psalm 72. And there at the end of that psalm, the psalmist uh, prays, verse 19 Blessed be his glorious name forever, and let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Now, I think that it's very often the case we pray for what we believe we ought to pray and what the Bible directs us to pray for. But sometimes we don't sufficiently inquire What am I actually praying for? When we pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. What are we actually praying for? When we come to the end of that prayer as Jesus taught the disciples, in fact, taught everyone in reality to pray, uh, thine is the kingdom. Thy kingdom come. Thine is the kingdom. It's coming, but it is. It's in progress, it's advancing, it's developing, it belongs to him, it's already his, but we are to pray thy kingdom come, even though we end saying or praying, for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory. Now, when we come to Revelation, and John tells us, that he is brought in the Spirit into heaven to see a throne. This is the throne that we're praying about. I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven. Thine is the kingdom. That's why the throne is there. Thy will be done in earth, regardless of men's opposition. Thy will be done among men, even though they resist it, and even though they would seek to thwart it, thy will be done. And thine be the kingdom and the power and the glory. And those who pray that way, when they come to Revelation, my, they must surely feel some degree of excitement in their very souls because they can see what they're really praying for now. They can see, this is really what I'm praying for. And when I'm praying for the knowledge of God's glory... To cover the earth. This is what I'm really praying for. Now what happens? You find as we come to the end of the book of the revelation. Who has the glory and who the kingdom belongs to. But here we have woe, woe, woe. And these are woes from heaven. They need to be taken mighty seriously. These are repeated. We have on other occasions woe mentioned once, but here it isn't even twice. It's three times. I tell you, this is solemn. This is truly solemn for the inhabitants of the earth. Woe to them because of what is going to take place. And the fifth angel sounded. Now, I might say in passing, verse 13 John says, I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven. Many of the manuscripts translated as eagle. And If you were to look, you would find there's a similarity between the word uh, angel written and the word uh, that is translated angel and the word that is translated eagle. And it does seem that it is more accurate an eagle it was flying through the midst of heaven, but whether that 's the case or not, the fact is this is an announcement made from the throne it 's on behalf of the throne that this announcement is made the The, the, the word is it were from christ 's throne, the exalted. Throne, he's saying, you inhabitants of earth, woe, woe, woe be to you. Because of this, hell is being, as it were, opened up to release its influence upon the men who are the inhabitants of the earth. And if you and I have any discernment, and if we look around us at what's happening in our society, we must conclude that what was introduced by the sound of that trumpet is a reality in our society. To him was given, who is it? A star. John says he saw a star fall from heaven. No ordinary star. A symbolic star. And to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit. This is a personage. He has fallen from heaven. Now if you go back with me to the uh, gospel according uh, to uh, Luke, you will see there, verse uh, chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, Jesus himself made a statement. He sent his disciples out to preach the gospel. And they were thrilled by the response. And they came back, reporting to Jesus what had happened. Verse 17 of Luke 10. Look at what Jesus has to say. The 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Now, that must have been amazing to them. The very devils, They can't defeat us. The devils are subject to us. We have power over them. He said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. There's the star. Now, when we go back in the Old Testament, we have a star mentioned that was to come out of Jacob. None other than a prediction regarding the Messiah. The bright and the morning star as he's referred to here in Revelation twice. Here is one who is appearing in opposition To the one who is the star out of Jacob, the one who is the bright and the morning star, the one who brings light to the church and his people. But remember that here, in this very book of the Revelation, there is one and he holds seven stars in his hand. And we're told who they are, the seven stars, verse twenty of Revelation 1, which thou sawest in thy right hand are the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The the seven stars are the angels, the messengers to the seven churches. They have responsibility to bring God's word to the seven churches. They are, in reality, messengers. They can be God's word to have its influence upon men. Now here we see a star falling from heaven and unto the earth. He's now among the inhabitants of the earth. What does he do? He's given a key. Now, it's the key of the bottomless pit, but you will note it is given to him. If you go back with me to Revelation chapter 1, you'll see there, mention of the glorified Christ and what he possesses, Revelation 1, verse 18, Jesus says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. I own them. I possess them I control them. I have the keys of hell and of death. No one can take them out of my hand. No one can make use of them except by my permission. I have the keys. And then you will uh, see that in Revelation 3 again, verse Uh, 7, to encourage the church in Philadelphia, this is what uh, Christ says to the church there. These things, verse 7, saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works, behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. And here again is Christ's claim to the power to open and shut. I possess the keys. And from that throne, he issues this uh, order, as it were, Here's the key to the bottomless pit. Here is the key of hell. Woe be unto the inhabitants of the earth, because the devil has now in his possession by sovereign uh, decree and order For the fulfillment of his purpose that man might see his glory. To him, he doesn't possess it. He doesn't own it. He doesn't control it. But it was given to him. To open the bottomless pit. It's as though what John sees as this, Christ, the glorious Christ on the throne is restraining the powers of hell and he now gives permission that the key will open the door and release From that fearful pit, agencies and influences by which men are to be tormented. What kind of influences? We're told they come out of the bottomless pit, the great Abyss, and he opened the bottomless pit and there arose a smoke, out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. This is a fearful judgment released into the earth, into human society, amongst the inhabitants of the earth, directly from the pit of hell itself. When do you and I imagine that the inhabitants of the earth would actually acknowledge that such a thing had ever happened? When do you imagine, even in the professing church, men are going to acknowledge the devastating, destroying influence of hell upon the inhabitants of the earth. Not only is there a great choking darkness, the smoke, and the stench of hell, the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke. But then in that smoke and coming out of that smoke, locusts arrive on the earth. A terrible plague of locusts. But we are clearly to understand they are not literal locusts. They are not little creatures going around eating up everything uh, that appears in the vegetable, uh, vegetative world. They are here far more devastating. What are we told uh, in verse uh, 11... They had a king over them which is the angel of the bottomless pit. whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon and in the Greek tongue his name Apollyon. They have a king over them. You go back with me to Proverbs and there in the chapter 30 we're told plainly uh, there are these Creatures on the earth that are great. And among them uh, are the locusts. Uh, Chapter 30 of uh, Proverbs, verse 27. The locusts have no king. The locusts don't have a king. Yet they go forth, all of them By bands, these are not ordinary locusts, because these have a king. But look at what we find them described as. Look at the description. There came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth. They are now locusts among the inhabitants of the earth. And they are so fearful. They are so dangerous. They are so dis- so devastating in their influence that the announcement from heaven is, Woe to you, inhabitants, because these locusts have come now among you. Out of hell itself. Go back with me to the book of Exodus, to the chapter 10 where we have the plagues mentioned and as we're coming near the end of the uh, 10 plagues, here's the plague of locusts and what does it say about it in Pharaoh's day? Uh, Exodus chapter 10 Uh, God tells Moses, stretch out your uh, rod, and then locusts will appear. Verse 14. Uh, Verse 13, just to get the context. Moses stretched forth his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night, and when it was morning. Now, what do you expect in the morning? The light to dawn. That's what you expect, the sun to rise. But here is something strange happening. It was morning. The east wind brought the locusts, and the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt and rested in all the coasts of Egypt. Very grievous were they before them. There were no such locusts as they neither after them shall be such. For they covered the face of the whole earth so that the land was darkened. And they did eat every herb of the land and so on. The land was darkened, even though it was morning. This was a devastating plague. Now here, out of hell, is released this terrible plague, far more devastating, because we are told it was commanded them in verse four that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing that's not their business. they're not here to wreak havoc as it were on the vegetation and the trees and the sea, anything like that. Instead, they are to be a destroying, hellish, evil, spiritual influence upon men. They are to destroy them in their souls. They are to destroy the souls of men. Woe because they've arrived among you. Now... They are not even to kill me. Verse 5. Well, we might note just how limited their power is. It is executive power from the throne itself. In reality, verse 3 of Revelation 9, there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power. Unto them was given power. As the scorpions of the earth of power. And it was commanded them. You see, they can do nothing without the sovereign permission of him who occupies the throne. His glory is to be seen in his judgments. It was commanded them they should not hurt the grass and so on. Verse 5. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he striketh a man. They are here as a spiritual plague from hell itself. Hell's very influence is among men. Now what kind of an influence is it? Spiritual, yes. But look at the details of the description, these symbolic descriptions. First of all, they appear as locusts, a plague of them, multitudes of them. And they have power that they are able to exercise among the earth, upon men. The only ones they cannot hurt. Verse 4, it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men. They're going to hurt men. They are going to use their powerful influence to destroy men spiritually, which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. Now, didn't we see the sealing of 144 out of the various tribes? You go back to the book of Numbers where we have the numbers of the tribes. In Israel, they're all numbered. How many thousands there was in each tribe? And it certainly was a great many more than 12,000. Each of the tribes had thousands. But here, out of all the multitudes, there are sealed a number. Why are they sealed? When the plague arrives from hell itself. It cannot hurt these. They are marked, they are sealed, they are under divine protection. And they will escape this evil, wicked influence. They will not be hurt because they are sealed, they are marked, they are protected. In other words, what God, what Christ has done is this. He has prepared the church. He has prepared his people for this fearful onslaught into human society. An onslaught from hell itself. Either we believe the Bible or we don't. Is this what we expect? Was John just writing fairy tales? Or was it real? Here is an influence of total perversion. Now, you'll see that. These are described as locusts. But they no more look like locusts than the man in the moon. Look at what it says of them. They, uh, we're told... uh, In verse 7, the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses, prepared unto battle. They have come out of hell prepared for battle. And the church has been prepared. The godly and the saints have been sealed and prepared. For this onslaught, this battle. They've come out of hell prepared for battle. Against whom? Against the church. And Christ has his people sealed so that they will be in readiness and they will be prepared and they will be safe and secure. But they have come from hell Prepared for battle. So there's this raging battle going on. What else do we read? On their heads, where, as it were, crowns of gold, not real gold, as it were. They looked like gold, they're imitation. They have come prepared for battle and prepared to win. They come already claiming victory. No one can defeat them as it were. They're impregnable. These mighty forces. Then we're told they have the faces of men. Lucas that appear like horses with the faces of men. What message do they convey? They're like horses prepared for battle. They are swift in their movement. They are ready for the attack. They are ready for the onslaught. And they appear with the faces of men. Displaying intelligence, looking as men would be expected to appear. Nothing to be anxious about, nothing to be afraid of. Their faces were the faces of men. Look at the perversion already, but look at it even more. Whoever ever saw a locust that looked like a horse with the face of a man? And then they have hair as the hair of woman. Why on earth would it say that? There must be some difference between the hair of a man and the hair of a woman. How would there not be? And they had hair like a woman. You might think, that's a pretty insignificant thing to say. What's their hair going to do for them? What's their hair to do with the battle? It is here giving to us, conveying to us the fact of this perversion right out of hell. Hell's perversion To pervert, to corrupt, to destroy the minds of men spiritually. They have the hair of woman and the teeth of a lion. What a gross picture you have. What a perversion this is. face of a man with teeth like a lion. Until they open their mouths, you don't know how dangerous they are. When they look with the face of a man, you seem nothing to be concerned about. Until they open their mouths, and then you know they speak as a devouring lion. And we are told they had breastplates, as it were, breastplates of iron. They seem impregnable. You can't get into them. You can't pierce their armor, as it were. They are immune to the strikings of any that they oppose. And the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running into battle. They have wings. They they are locusts, but they have the bodies of horses. They have the faces of men. They have hair like a woman. They have teeth like a lion. They have their armor clad, and they have wings. What a grotesque creature. It's a perversion, you see. It's the perversion of nature. It's the perversion of man. He's got hair like a woman. It's the perversion of woman. She appears as a woman, but she's a lion or a lioness maybe. Here is the scene before us and they have a king over them. These are no ordinary locusts. Now, this scene is a scene that calls heaven to declare by way of warning, Woe to you, inhabitants, when these creatures, out of hell, with all their perversions, come among you. Now you don't have to go far to discover what one of these are the type of the perversion that it must be. In the epistle that Paul writes to the Romans in the chapter 1, here's what Paul writes. God, because man had Rejected the gospel and the word of God, verse 19 of Romans 1, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed them. That's the works of creation. Then in verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Professing verse 22 themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the un- uncorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man and so on. Wherefore verse 24, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. There's perverted, immoral conduct. Where does it have its origin? Verse 25, they changed the truth of God into a lie and so on. For Verse 26, for this cause... God gave them up unto what? Vile affections. Now you all heard, even the Prime Minister of Australia, at the time of the referendum, on the matter of same-sex marriage, what it is, it's all about love. It's all about love. It sure is. Here it is even for this cause God give them hope, give them up, he give the key to be opening the pit that out of it might come what vile affections vile. Affections. And this is what we're taught. People have a right right to love each other. That's all about love. And have affection one for another. And if a man loves a man, that's fine. If a woman loves a woman, that's fine. They can be married. Vile affections. Love, so-called. That is vile. Now... You may not know, but I'm telling you now, there's quite a raging controversy uh, within the clerical community here at the moment. The minister from the Uniting Church uh, has uh, resigned, as it were, from post as the chairman of the Uh, Ministers Association because the Uniting Church has voted in favor of gay marriage so the ministers are expected to marry gay couples now the minister from Grafton has refused so he doesn't know what his future is he doesn't know what's going to happen to him Uh, there are quite a number in the church I think around 300 in Australia who are of the same mind Now, the fact is, he sent a letter intimating his resignation to the ministers' association. Now, the dean of the cathedral here, who reckons himself to be the archbishop of the whole Clarence Valley, he decided that he would publish a letter to the association supposedly sympathizing with the uniting church minister but declaring that he disagreed with him. Now of course the responses came from other ministers and I wrote a lengthy letter to the association sending a copy to the dean. Now, I cannot possibly read out to you the content of that letter. But what I am going to do is read you some of the lines of the content of his response. And it tells you and I what a sad state this community is really in. He begins, Dear Dr. Hutton, your letter to Reverend Adrian Van Ash a copy of which you have sent to me, listen, is a sad but predictable litany of conservative views that almost any educated theologian is bound to dismiss as nonsense. So you poor people are to be pitied when I get up here and talk nonsense to you. Then he goes on later to say at the end of the letter, I had written about the poor disenchanted and unchurched residents. What on earth do they think of us? What do the people in the pew think of us? If it is true, because he said we don't all agree on the books of the Bible. So I mentioned this. He says, I want them, that's the residents, I want them to know that their cathedral is a faith community where everyone is welcome, where God's transforming presence among us is celebrated and affirmed. A place where doubt is honored and questions are welcomed. A church, listen, where the Bible is taken seriously but not literally, and where the insights of the natural and social sciences are embraced. I defended in my letter the canon of Scripture and uh, so on, and uh, then he says, I want to set the cathedral as far apart from views such as yours as possible. I do not want any resident of the Clarence Valley to think that ideas such as you espouse are promoted by Grafton Cathedral. Now, there may be more developed out of phrases, I agree that it would be best if we were clearly and publicly disassociated from each other. So he may even go public to disassociate himself from evangelicals and from conservatives and so on. But this this, is what we have. Men in pulpits, who say you do not take the Bible literally. Sin is not to be taken literally. The atonement is not to be taken literally. The deity of Christ, you don't take that literally. Where on earth are poor souls to look to? What is the purpose of a man even claiming to be a minister of Jesus Christ? When these are the views. Now, who knows what will yet develop out of it. It was the dean of the cathedral who started it. He he obviously wants it clear. He says he welcomes same-sex couples to marry them. And uh, he uh, believes that uh, he's been asked for even one verse out of the Bible that uh, gives God's blessing upon such a union, and he just dismisses everything as, as here. He just dismisses. He never even attempted to address one argument I used. Not even one. Just dismissed it all as nonsense. Now that's where we are. Woe unto the inhabitants of the earth, when hell's influence is let loose into human society. And it has been let loose. And we need to awaken, I'll tell you, everyone in this congregation needs to be alive spiritually. We need to be on our knees. We need to be praying to God that he will not allow these hellish influences to Get in and destroy the souls of men more than it's doing. And we need to be pleading with God to keep us faithful to the word of God. And there's no room for complacency. There simply is no room. They've come out of hell prepared as horses for battle. What are we doing? Are we in a position to fight back? Are we in a position to contend earnestly for the faith that was once delivered to the saints? What John saw was real. Little wonder it was announced from heaven, woe, woe, woe this terrible influence, this influence of hellish perversion, the gospel perverted, morals perverted, the laws perverted, because the key has been given that judgment might fall on men. God's judgments, he allows Satan, and these plague of locusts, to destroy the souls of men. And the only protection is for those who've been sealed by the blood and those who are kept by Christ. But we shall leave it there. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Most holy and eternal God, bless thy word to us. Enable us not only to understand it, but to apply it. Open the eyes of our understanding that we might know the terrible days in which we are living, that we might appreciate that we cannot, we dare not, we cannot afford to compromise any of thy truth. Bless thy word abundantly wherever men faithfully preach it. Rid as we pray from the false prophets and the false apostles and those who are destroying the souls of men. Here is pardon us, accept us for Christ's sake. Amen.